I have the privilege to go into many people's homes. I'm a carpet cleaner and tile cleaner. I have the privilege to go into people's homes and eight times out of ten, normally, the person is one of religious persuasion, whether it be a Muslim, whether it be a Hindu, whether it be a Christian. In my line of work, I've met only... Uh, one Scientologist, uh, and we had a very interesting conversation. But when I go into these homes and when I sometimes see a Bible or normally there's a little Jesus Calling book on the table or something like that, I or uh, Pastor Antonio will ask, oh, so uh, you go to church. What church you go to? And normally that's how we like to you know, start a conversation. And the customers like that. They like to, uh, to talk about church and their church and what they're doing. And normally what we ask is, what is your church service like? What is, what is your pastor currently preaching on? What do you like about the church? And normally the answers that they give are, well, man, we have a really great band. We just have a kicking worship service. Mind you, we learned from Pastor Antonio last Sunday evening that, uh, or two Sunday evenings ago, that a, a worship is all that we do as far as uh, uh, us collectively um, worshiping together. So when we say worship, it's not just songs; it's the preaching, it's the it's the singing, um, it's the it's the worshiping with Christ at His table. But they say we have a wonderful worship service. And what they mean by that is the singing. It's, it's live. It's an experience. It's, in many cases, interactive. We have a wonderful preacher. He's going through uh, ten ways of how to gain victory over your sin. Friends, if someone was to ask you what church you go to, but more specifically... What is your church service like? What would you say? What is your church service like? If we were brought a group of strangers into the church, men and women who had had no experience with Christianity or the church service or church service, I imagine one of the things that might be most surprising to them is how focused the worship service is on words. How focused the worship surface is on words. It's evident as you look around that we don't have multiple screens hanging on the church walls. We don't have quotes, different Bible verses on the walls. There's not different colors on the walls. We don't have a big stage or an elaborate pulpit. We don't have three guitars and a saxophone and a, and a bass on the stage. We don't even have a bookstore or Starbucks in the back for you to drink coffee when the service is done. In all honesty, there really isn't anything here that would completely knock your socks off other than what we say. There's nothing here that would blow you away other than the words that we speak. Everything we do in church, in this church, centers around words. 
from what we sing, from what we pray, from the scriptures we read, to what text the preacher preaches from. We all center around certain specific words. Words play a big part in our worship service. And I imagine if the stranger was to evaluate our church service, they would say that our service isn't anything about religious rituals. Reformation Bible Church wasn't about performance. There were no pictures to look at. But... It's all about proclamation. In spite of there being some sort of experience, there is a great proclamation. From the preaching or from the opening of the pastor's prayer to the very ending of the pastor's benediction, there is a proclamation that we all are heralding together. That there is something that we are saying together. That we're not worried about ritual, experience, performance. We're worried about saying one thing with one voice. From the beginning to the end of the service, we are all proclaiming something. So what are we proclaiming? Who are we proclaiming? And why are we proclaiming it? Our text today answers those questions. If you have your Bibles, and you do, and you've already been there, I'm sure, we are starting a new series in John's first letter, 1 John. And to give you some background, 1 John was written around the early 90 AD to most likely a group of churches. John writes these letters with great earnest because false teachers have crept into the church and they're seeking to lead God's people astray. Thus, many scholars believe that 1 John is a polemical letter. 1 John or John in 1 John is being a great apologist. He's defending the faith against those heretics who are trying to destroy the faith. But in light of these great, these great polemical arguments that John gives, he's very, extremely pastoral. Throughout the letter, he refers to the people in these churches as his little children. He looks to them as a father would his children. And in doing so, he must remind them of what it means to be united to Christ by faith. What does it mean to have a God who is light and to walk in that very same light? That those who are in Christ don't walk the old paths of sin and darkness. If you have been saved by the precious blood of Christ, then you don't do the very things that slit your husband's throat. But this letter has much encouragement as well. He reminds them that if they do sin, then they have one who is an advocate before the Father. That he assures them in light of their greatest sin that grace in Christ is even greater, is much greater, it's superior. That Jesus Christ pleads on our behalf before 
the throne of grace. He assures them that sin is not and will never be what defines a Christian. Although we do sin, we are not defined by our sin. Therefore, we should not walk in sin, but walk in the light. And Christian assurance is the ultimate purpose of this letter. If you struggle with, if I'm, am I saved? Am I not saved? If I'm saved, then why am I sinning? And 1 John is a letter that you ought to read daily. He says in chapter 5, verse 13, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. Doesn't this sound familiar? What does John say in his gospel? He says, now Jesus had many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. There's so many parallels between John's first letter and his first gospel. It's almost as if if one was reading the gospel of John and said, if there's any way, John, where you can condense what you're saying, is there any way where you can just summarize those chapters in the gospel of John. Can you do that for me? And he says, yes. Here's a letter that might be of some encouragement to you. And friends, what John wrote in the early 90s AD is still speaking volumes today. That this letter is just as important as it was in that time as it is in our time today. So, saints, if you have your Bibles, and if you are in 1 John, let's stand for the reading of God's word. And we will just consider the opening verses of 1 John this morning, verses 1 through 4. The word of the Lord says this. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest, and we have seen it, and testify to it, and proclaim it to you, the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. Saints, you may be seated. This morning, to help us with these four glorious verses, I have just three simple points. Number one, the who. Number two, the what. And number three, the why. The who, the what, and the why. And this is all coming from or gleaning from our proclamation. John here in these opening verses is proclaiming something. So who is he proclaiming? What is he proclaiming? And why is he proclaiming it? Let's look at the first point, and that is who, the who. Friends, as we read the opening words of 1 John, we might be taken back with how it begins. 
For John begins his letter in an unusual way, does he not? He doesn't begin his letter like the Apostle Paul in Ephesians or Colossians, giving thanks to God for the people whom he's writing to. He doesn't begin his letter like Peter in 1 Peter, greeting his hearers with love. But rather, John begins his letter by proclaiming that sweet science of the person of Jesus Christ. Rather than a greeting, and rather than thanking God for his hearers, we begin this letter in the ages of eternity. Look with me at verse 1. John says, That which was from the beginning. That which was from the beginning. In time and space, the beloved John transports his hearers to a time when there was no time and space. He turns back the clock, as it were, and before the heavens and before the earth, before there was darkness and light, even before there was matter and before there was a beginning, he says that there was God. Before the dawn of the beginning, the eternal sun was there. That which was from the beginning is our Lord Jesus Christ. Immediately, he wants to proclaim the divinity and the deity of Jesus Christ. He's going straight at the heart of the matter. And if you know your Bible well, then you know that these opening words of 1 John should sound familiar to you. But what does John say in the opening of his gospel? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The opening words of 1 John echo the opening words of the gospel of John. He's saying pretty much the exact same thing. John opens both his gospel and his letter, first letter, proclaiming and defending the deity of Christ. And the way he does that is by identifying the pre-existence of Jesus Christ. Again, he says in verse 1, that's what was from the beginning. In verse 2, he says, proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father. There's something that John is doing here in these opening verses. With just these two phrases, John is echoing the opening words of Genesis 1, in the beginning, God. Jesus Christ is the eternal Son, who from all eternity dwelled in perfect fellowship with the Father and the Spirit. He is the pre-existent one. He was there in the beginning. If, in fact, if you were to go to the garden, if you were to see the rivers, see the trees, see the fruits, see the animals, the Father would say, this was all made through my Son. He was in the beginning. He was there because through Him, beginning came into existence. No verse captures this better than the Pro in Proverbs 8. Before the mountains have been shaped, before the hills, I was brought forth. Before he had made the earth with its fields or the first of the dust of the world. When he established the heavens, I was there. When he drew a circle in the face of the deep and when he made the firm, the skies above. 
And when he established the fountains of the deep, when he assigned to the sea its limit, so that the waters might not transgress his command, when he marked out the foundations of the earth, and hear this, then I was beside him. Like a master workman, I was his daily, his delight, rejoicing before him always. Before there was something, there was Christ. Before there was anything in this world, there was the Son. Jesus Christ is the eternal, timeless one. He is the one whom Augustine says in his confessions, your years do not come and go. Your today does not give way to tomorrow, nor follow your yesterday. But your today is eternity. Jesus Christ does not have a today. He does not have a yesterday. He doesn't have a future. His today is eternity. He stands before time and space, before matter and existence, before beginning and nothing. There was Jesus Christ. Think about that, friends. We can imagine, can we not, something never ending. It's simple. That something just goes and goes forever. But imagine something that never had a beginning. Something that never came into existence. Something that was not caused from another one. We are out of our depths. But this is who Jesus Christ is. He is the eternal pre-existent one. Jesus Christ is truly God. But when we say that Jesus Christ is truly God, we don't mean that he's a God in the midst of other gods. That he just as happens to be one God in a pantheon of deities. It doesn't mean that Jesus became God. Out of a lifetime of good works, he was elevated to divinity. But I think the words of the Nicene Creed say it best, that Jesus Christ is God of God, light of light, true God of true God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father, by whom all things were made. Jesus Christ is the eternal Son of the eternal God. And if you read any works from the patristic or medieval period, you would see that one of the ways that they argue for the divinity of the Son is simply identifying what it means for him to be Son. If we were to defend that Jesus Christ is God, then we must first understand what it means for him to be Son. He is the Son of the Eternal Father. Just as if you were to ask, what is the son of a human? Or what is a son of a duck? What would you say? A duck. A human. The son of a duck is a duck. The son of a bird is a bird. The son takes on all of what it means. To be a bird, to be a duck, to be a human. And this argument follows clearly from what we see between the relationship between the Father and the Son. If the Father is infinite and eternal, then His Son, 
who shares in his same nature is infinite and eternal. That's what it means for him to be son. If the father is God, then the son is God. If the son is not eternal, then the father is not eternal. If the son is not God, then the father is not God. If the father is all that it means to be God, then the one who proceeds from him is all of what it means to be God without remainder. The Bible makes this clear, does it not? The Son is the image of the Father, Colossians 1.15. He is the radiance of the Father's glory, Hebrews 1.3. He is the eternal word that exegetes the Father. He explains the Father, as he says in John 1.18. This is an older way of talking, but it is an orthodox and precise way that Jesus Christ is truly the Son of God. And if he is the son of God, then he is God in and of himself. It's a simple point, is it not? That Jesus Christ is God. For us to say that Jesus Christ is God is sort of of second nature to us. We are at the very early stages of our youth. We are taught that Jesus Christ is God. It just flows naturally from our tongue that Jesus is the eternal son. But friends, it is this truth here that almost destroyed the early church. The very thing that comes so natural for us to proclaim is the very thing that almost destroyed all of what the church stood for. Where you have in 320 this priest from Alexandria named Arius who started saying that Jesus Christ is the first and greatest creation of the Father. That Jesus Christ is Son because He was created by the Father. Therefore, there once was a time when the Son was not. That almost nearly took over the church. But what does God do? In the light of such heresy, he raises up men like Alexander of Alexandria. He raises up men like Athanasius, who says that Arius, if you are to believe that the Son is created, then you're believing that the Son is a creature. Thereby, our salvation is of no use. You see, Arius' savior is no savior at all. If Jesus Christ is not truly God, if he is not one substance with the Father, then we have no hope for salvation. This truth of Christ's divinity is what the early church went to great lace defending for us to stand and be in this building to proclaim that Jesus Christ is God of God, light of light, true God of true God. Because, saints, it is that proclamation is of utmost importance, is it not? Jesus says in John 8, 24, I told you that you will die in your sins. For unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. If you don't believe that Jesus Christ is God, then you will die in your sins. And saints, what a scandal this was in Christ's day. Jesus says in John 8, 58, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. 
So they picked up stones to throw at him. The Pharisees and scribes knew exactly what Jesus Christ was saying. They knew exactly what he was proclaiming, that he was and is truly God. Not merely that God was his father, but if you've seen him, you've seen the father. That he is the image of the father, that he and the father are one. And saints, that scandal that was in Christ's day is still a truth that's rejected in our day today, is it not? From Muslims to atheists to Hindus to Buddhists, they will allow Christians to believe anything they want concerning Christ, but they can't believe that Jesus is the Son of God. He can be a great moralist. He can be a great teacher. But he can't be God. But friends, this is what our salvation hinges upon. We must declare that Jesus Christ is God. For when we consider the message of the gospel... We must not reduce the message of the gospel, the story of redemptive history, of a mere man-savior. But salvation is a story, first and foremost, of the God-savior. It is not a man who comes from heaven to save us. But it is God in the flesh who comes to save us. It is the second person of the Trinity that saves us. Not a mere man but God and God alone. Salvation is rooted first and foremost in God alone. And as Christ lived, he truly lived as man. But it was his divinity that added worth to his perfect life. As Christ died, he died as very man, but it was his divinity that upheld and add value to his sacrifice. No mere man can save you, but a God-man can save you. Friends, when we think about Jesus Christ, we first, uh, first and foremost must affirm his deity. No matter how simple that is, no matter how much of the ABCs of Christianity that is, we must get this right, that he is that which was from the beginning. That is the first point the disciple wants us to get clear. That Jesus Christ is the eternal son of the eternal God. He is the great I am. The one whom all things owe their existence to. He is the who of the proclamation. Now let's consider the what of the proclamation. After the disciple John has set forth the pre-existence of Jesus Christ. He now gets into the heart of the matter. We began in eternity past. Now John moves us forward into history. And we see in verse 1, the true humanity of Jesus Christ put on display. He says in verse 1, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and touched with our hands. John is saying, that which was from the beginning Think about this. We saw him. The pre-existent one. The one who was before time and space and matter and beginning. We saw him. 
The one who said, let there be light. We heard him preach. The one who was incomprehensible. We gazed upon him and we studied him. The one who dwells in unapproachable light. We saw him with our very eyes. The one who is invisible. We touched with our very hands. Now, why does John feel the need to mention this? Why does he say and go to great lengths to talk about seeing and hearing and touching Jesus Christ? Because during the time of John's writing, there was a group of men named the Gnostics who were going around and who were twisting the word of God. And the central claim of the Gnostics was an opposition between spirit and matter. Now stay with me here. They said that spirit is good. And what they mean by spirit is anything that's immaterial. For example, the things that you can't touch, the things that you can't smell, the things that you can't see, the things that you can't taste. For example, our spirit, our souls. Those are good. But the matter... Those things that you can touch, that can see, that you can hear, that you can taste, those things are evil. For example, our bodies. And what we need most in this life is we need our spirits, which are good, to be freed from our bodies, which is evil, in order for us to have true happiness. There was another group called the Docetists, who said that, well, since Jesus Christ is the eternal son, then there's no way that he could take on that which was evil. That that which was spirit can't take on that which is evil, a body. So what they said was that when you saw Jesus Christ, you weren't really seeing him, but he was a phantom. He didn't really have a body because bodies are evil. And here, by John saying that we touched, we saw, we heard that which was from the beginning. Essentially, he's slicing to pieces heretic after heretic, argument after argument that claims that Jesus Christ did not truly come in the flesh. He's tearing down every heretic that's saying That the eternal one did not take on a body. That spirit did not take on matter. Here he says that the eternal son of God assumed that which you view as evil. He took on that which you view as the most detestable thing. That the one who is true light took on a body. The eternal experienced the temporal. The timeless came into existence in history. The disciple says that for over three years, every second of every day, I saw him face to face. I was with him from morning to evening to night. He says, I heard him. I heard the eternal one speak. I listened to his parables. I heard his teaching. He taught me how to pray. He says, I touched him. I leaned upon him at the Last Supper. 
Thomas placed his hand on his side. I felt him. I was there when he got hungry. I was there when he got tired. I saw him weep over his friend Lazarus. I saw blood come from his wrists and his feet. I saw him in agony and pain as they whipped him. Friends, essentially what John is saying is that Jesus Christ was made like us in every way, yet without sin. That Jesus Christ was of the very life of humanity. That he was blood of our blood and flesh of our flesh and bone of our bone. He says, I saw him. But it's not only me. There are 12 others that saw him. And as we come to verse 2, John explains the very heart of the gospel. He says in verse 2, the life was made manifest. And we have seen it. And testify it and proclaim it to you, the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. The Puritan Thomas Watson once wrote, What king would be, uh, would be willing to wear sackcloth over his cloth of gold? But Christ did not disdain to take our flesh. Oh, the love of Christ. Had not Christ been made flesh, we had been made a curse. Had he not been incarnate, we had been incarcerated and had been forever in prison. Friends, what is the greatest news you've ever heard? One of the greatest news I've ever heard was when my wife, Leela, told me that she had a great surprise for me. And usually what that means is she brought me some sweet surrender cookies. So she comes in the room and she presents to me this tin can. I said, this is awkward. This is weird. Because sweet surrender cookies come in a white box. So what is this? I opened it and it says, I love my dad. She tells me then that I'm going to be a father. One of the greatest moments in all of my life. But saints, that pales in comparison to the opening words of verse 2. The life was made manifest. I love the news of being a dad. I cried tears of joy when I found out that my sister Martina was having a baby after trying year after year. But friends, this takes the cake, does it not? That the life was made manifest. Those words echo what John wrote in John 1.14, that the word became flesh. But notice the word that the disciple uses. He says that the life was made manifest. And this was intentionally directed at those heretics in his day that says that salvation comes through secret knowledge. And that's what the Gnostics were proclaiming. That if you want to be saved, then you have to know this secret knowledge. Here, John is saying that we don't find salvation by way of secret knowledge, but rather salvation comes to us publicly in the eternal Son who was made manifest. Salvation has not come to us by way of secrets, but salvation has come to us by way of a public proclamation that that which was from the beginning has became like us. But notice... That John refers to Jesus Christ 
as the life. He says it three times. The word of life, the life, the eternal life, which was with the father. And what John is doing here is twofold. First, he's stating that who we are in our fallen state. That's when we sinned in Adam, that Adam went from innocent to a guilty sinner. That he fell from the mountaintop of innocence to the very abyss of sin. But we know that it wasn't just for himself. But when Adam fell, he plunged us down those same miseries with him. We all are condemned in Adam. We all are condemned with Adam. Adam's sin is woven into the very fabric of who we are. From head to foot, we are covered in sin. And because of our sin, we are utterly disabled to do anything good before God. Because of our sin, that we are eternally damned. But the Apostle Paul sums this up best when he says in Romans 6.23, For the wages of sin is death. In Adam, there's only one road. There's only one way. There's only one ending for you. If you are in Adam, then you will perish. That you undoubtedly will die. But notice what he says next. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ. In Adam, we all die. In Christ, we all live. The life that Adam lost in the garden, Jesus Christ won by his perfect life and death. Jesus obtained for us eternal life. Think about that, friends. Eternal life obtained for us eternal life. Eternal life obtained for us. He won for us eternal life. Jesus is the eternal everlasting one, is he not? He is life in and of himself. If you have life, then you have it in Jesus Christ. And the same eternal life that he is, is the same eternal life that he won. Is the same eternal life that he freely offers to us. John says in verse 2, the message, that this message which we have seen and testify to it and proclaim it to you, the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. Friends, this is the message that's John proclaimed. He proclaimed the word became flesh to offer eternal life. This is the central message of Christianity. This is what puts the good in the good news of the gospel. That God became man so that man may have fellowship with God. That is what puts good news in good news. That the word was made manifest. And the sad reality is that this simple message is so foreign in many pulpits in our churches today, is it not? Sermons nowadays are more creative than they are biblical. The preacher is more dynamic than he is theologically sound. He's less of a pastor and preacher and a shepherd and more of a life coach. The exposition of scripture has been replaced with a motivational speech. No longer will you hear the good news, but simply good advice. 
saints, what we need so desperately in our pulpits today is what Paul said in 1 Corinthians one twenty three that we preach Christ crucified. That is what we need to hear. That is what we are to proclaim. I don't care if you know this top to bottom, if you can recite the gospel inside out. Your soul needs to hear every single day, every single Sunday, that the word became flesh and he dwelt among us. And by his life, by his perfect death, by his resurrection, then we have a surety that we have life, eternal life. We preach not a budget. We preach not a preacher. We preach not social justice. We preach not a political agenda. But we preach him who was eternal became a bleeding savior. That is what we preach. That is the proclamation of the gospel. Not simply just another way in the midst of other ways. Not just simply under the theory of philosophy. But Jesus and him alone. He is the heart of the gospel. He is the gospel. He is what the gospel is all about. When you say the gospel, you say Jesus Christ. And when you say Jesus Christ, you say the gospel. The apostle Paul said in 1 Corinthians 2, 2, For I desire to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I desire to know not some vague philosophy that tells us about how the universe came to be, but Christ and him crucified. Christ in him alone. And saints, this is the message that we are to proclaim. That the eternal son became man so that in him we may have eternal life. Do you have that desire to know Christ? Do you have that burning heart within you to know more about your Savior? Not simply that he was a true man and true God and true man and true God, but all that he tells in his person and work. For it is, as Spurgeon says, the highest science that one could ever study. This is what we proclaim. This is the what of our proclamation. This is the what of the gospel. Now let's consider our third point. Our final point, the why. After we have seen the who and the what of John's message, we come now to the why. What is the purpose and goal of this proclamation? The eternal son was made manifest so that we may have eternal life. But why should we proclaim this message? John gives us the answer in verse 3 and 4. That, we, uh, that which we have seen and heard, we, also, uh, we proclaim also to you. So that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed our fellowship is with the father and with his son Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. Why do we proclaim this message? Why preach the gospel? Why go down to great lengths to tell others about this good news? Because it produces eternal life. It produces eternal fellowship. And it produces eternal joy. This is why we proclaim the good news of the gospel. Because it proclaims eternal life. 
It produces eternal life. It produces eternal fellowship. And it produces eternal joy. Let's quickly look at these three benefits. We have, we have in Christ a life that will never end. What a great and glorious thing that is, is it not? We have in Christ a life that will have no ending. Now, you see, friends, everyone will die one day. That's a given. Our bodies will give over to death. But what the gospel says is that those who die in Christ will one day be raised bodily. Human beings long for immortality. In fact, we all get on these keto diets and Akin diets and carnivore diets for us to live these long lives. But the promise of the gospel is that with Christ and in Christ, we will live for all eternity. But friends, as sweet as that may sound, that's not enough. It's not enough for us simply to live a very long life. You see, when we speak of eternal life, we can think that all it means is we live forever. And no doubtably, undoubtedly, that's, that's what it means, that we will live for all eternity. But friends, there's more to eternal life than just living in a long duration. You see, when we speak of eternal life, when the Bible speaks of eternal life, it's not merely focus on the quantity of life, but rather the quality of life. Think about that, friends. When we say eternal life, it's not merely how long we will live, but how good we will live for that long of time. Jesus said in John seventeen three, this is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ with whom they sent. Now stay with me here, friends, because this is important. And I was excited when I was preparing this. What is eternal life according to Jesus Christ? It is to know and to have fellowship with the Father, Son, and Spirit. That is eternal life. It is to have fellowship with the triune God. This is what John says in our verses this morning. Indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. Eternal life is to know God and to know Him truly. To know Him in a more intimate way. This eternal life, this fellowship with God is what Adam enjoyed in the garden. Adam enjoyed perfect communion with the Father, Son, and Spirit. And if he fulfilled his end of the covenant of works, then he would receive a, the gift of a heightened communion bond where he and God would be in a never-changing state of love and peace. A perfect communion bond between the Father, Son, and Spirit. But when Adam fell... Hear me now. What he ultimately lost was that perfect life that he shared in the Trinity. When Adam fell, what he lost was that perfect life that he shared in the Trinity. He lost communion with God. 
And what we see after Adam's fall is God made a promise that, yes, he, his son would bruise the head of the serpent, but also that his son would come and bring humans back into a share in the communion of the Trinity. Friends, this is what it means to have fellowship with God. It is to share and to participate in the very life of God. It is the Father, Son, and Spirit who dwell in fellowship, perfect fellowship with one another. And what we are given as a gift from Christ is a share in that perfect fellowship that the Holy Trinity enjoys. We are adopted sons and daughters by grace, are we not? And by faith in the Son, we know that we are united to the Son. And since we are united to the Son, then we enjoy and participate in the mutual love relationship between the Father and the Son. That's what it means to have life in the Trinity. Friends, this is what it means to have fellowship with God. This is what humanity was created for. As one theologian said, God made us so that he can be our father in a way that reflects his fatherly relationship with his holy son. The father sends forth his son, who becomes our brother, so that we can become the son's sisters and brothers, and thus the sons and daughters of God the father himself. You might have never heard of something like that before. But when you think about our union with Christ, our union with the Son, it is to share in that mutual love between the Father and the Son. It is to share in the very life, the perfect life of the Trinity. And friends, this has great applications of how we are to relate to one another in the church. We are to reflect and mirror the love relationship that we have with God. John says in, uh, in verses 3 and 4, that's what we have seen and heard. We also proclaim to you so that you too may have fellowship with us. It is the basis and is upon this basis of our fellowship with the Father, Son, and Spirit that we have fellowship with one another. The more we grow in our love and communion with God, the more we will grow in our love and communion with one another. The Bible is clear that we are commanded to love one another. And the basis of that love is not that we have the same baseball team that we are fond of. Not that we worked in the same arena. Not that we have the same friends, but the basis of our love, the basis of our communion with one another is that we share in one Lord, one faith, one baptism, and one God, the Father of us all. That is why we are to love one another. And lastly, we see the proclamation of the good news our message produces. The proclamation of the good news of the gospel is that it produces joy. John says in verse 4, And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. These words echo what Jesus said in John 15, 11. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Joy is a fruit of the spirit that the spirit produces in us. And there's no doubt that joy can, produce, uh, can be produced in many things. Whether it be possessions, personal achievements, music, 
recreations. We all can find joy in something. But what John has in mind is not some temporal, earthly joy, but an eternal joy. A joy found only in God. A joy that's unique only to those who have fellowship with God. And a joy that we have as believers, the joy that we have as believers is simply knowing and sharing in the fellowship of God. Saints, this is where we are to fix all of our affections. What joy is it to know that God is our Father, that the Son is our Savior, and that the Spirit is our closest companion? Our joy is in God alone. Think about that, friends. We get excited when we know that our boss knows our name, our name by on a first name basis. We get excited when we see someone who is of great stature to us, identify us and know who we are. But the God of heaven and earth calls us his children. I don't know about you, but that should bring such joy. It brings such joy to me. David said in Psalm 16:5, "The Lord is the portion of my inheritance and my cup. You support my lot." The apostle Paul says in Philippians 3:8, "More than that, I count all things to be loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ." Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish so that I may gain Christ. The question I have for you, friends, is when you consider the greatest joys in your life, where does God rank? I have a a 10-month, I think he's 10-month-year-old baby, and he is the joy of my life. And as a parent, and I can speak of this now, we have the tendency to put our children ahead of our wives, even ahead of our love for God. Friends, I advise you, and I strongly tell you this, that there should be no one, there should be nothing that takes away the joy that you have in Jesus Christ. Not babies, Not your perfect marriage. Not that raise that you will get in five months. But in God and God alone, He is to be our treasure. He is to be our supreme joy. And as we come to the end of our sermon this morning, what the beloved disciple has taught us is that Jesus Christ is the message of the gospel. And when we preach Christ, we preach his incarnation. When we preach Christ, we preach his life. We preach his sacrificial death. We preach his bodily resurrection. And we preach the eternal life that he freely offers to those by faith alone. And secondly, those who have believed the good news of Christ share in the very life of Christ. They gain access into the most intimate and perfect relationship. They can call God Father, and God calls us his children. And friends, this fellowship that we have with God should be the greatest joy in our life. I remember Pastor Antonio telling us a while ago, but it always stuck with me. 
that we as Christians should be the happiest people on earth. In spite of what we go through, there should be a treasure that we hold deep in our hearts that no amount of drama, stress, and despair can touch. Saints, as we close, I just leave you with some questions to consider. Ask yourself, are the purposes for which John is writing these things the same purposes and experiences of my life? Do I find joy in God? Are you experiencing and fellowshipping with your brothers and sisters of the faith? Do you enjoy talking with your brothers and sisters of the faith? Are you proclaiming the message of Christ? I'm so thankful that Pastor Antonio asks us now, whom have we shared the gospel with? Because a verse like this should challenge us. That if we have the greatest news that one could ever hear, then why are we to keep it to ourselves? Friends, if you answered no to all these questions that my only suggestion to you is that you return again and again to the essence of the gospel. You return and look to Jesus Christ. That you hear him speak to you in his word. That you study what he has accomplished for you in his perfect life, death, and resurrection. So that you may enter into the joy of our Savior. Let's pray.